slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. In this episode, I chat with actor Roger Clark about life in Ireland, theater, Arthur Morgan, Frankenstein, Rockstar Games, Red Dead Redemption, motion capture, and more. Also, if you're listening to this and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. really helps out a lot. Anyway, that's enough of the bullshit. Without further ado, here you go. Hold up there, son. Now, this here town's filled with all kinds of monsters, madness, and magic. So, how about you just leave the killing to the killers and just get out of my damn way? and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. You know, were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Man, well, when I used to go to the library all the time in summer, summer vacations, I would read Beverly Clearly a lot. I would read Roald Dahl. I got big into adult books. I was reading Stephen King by the time I was nine or ten. It was a little weird. When I was in Ireland, some of the books they wouldn't let me take out. They'd be like, oh, no, you can only take this out. You can only take books out with, uh, with a purple sticker on it that comes from the child section. So, of course, I went and got the purple sticker and I just plopped it on Mario Puzo's The Godfather and then they checked, they, I'm a nine-year-old reading Godfather. I, I loved books, I always, I still do, although I don't, now it's mostly for professional reasons I read. I, I don't read for leisure as much as I used to. When did you start the audio book venture? Gosh, I started it when I was a kid. My dad used to do, before we moved to Ireland, my dad used to do news, uh, newspaper for the blind, for the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, in the state of New Jersey. And I would often help him as a child, you know, seven, eight years old, go over to, he would record, and they would, I remember the machine that they had, it would record about six cassettes uh, simultaneously. And they would read the, the Star-Ledger newspaper for people who were blind or visually impaired, and they would get the cassette in the mail weekly, and I would help cut out the articles that they chose to record and then when we moved over to Ireland my dad brought it over there and joined up in, in on the west coast of Ireland too for the Sligo champion so that was my first foray into it but as far as narrating is concerned I started that a, a little bit over a decade ago when you made that initial move to Ireland 
was that a culture shock for you was it do you remember it being difficult for you to transition i remember we were there every summer so i i knew the place but it was a culture shock still we were only there for summers i never went to school there i never spent more than a couple of weeks at a time there before but i was too young to really appreciate how much of a culture shock it really was that was probably for the best <laughs> i stuck out like a sore thumb so much so that i kind of got rid of the yankee accent as quickly as i could but still there's still some left you know there's enough left that when i'm in ireland i sound american and when i'm in america i sound irish or some americans don't they don't even know where the hell i'm from no i, I can definitely pick it up is there a eureka moment that you can point to early on maybe a play or performance you saw that sort of ushered you into the art you know there, i don't remember any one specific moment but i do remember first time i performed for kindergarten there was 26 students in the class so for some reason she decided to do the personification of the alphabet and everyone was a specific letter and i was z and at first i thought that sucked but then i realized i got to close the show mm-hmm there was a lot of eureka moments. I can't say any one stands out more than the other, but I was always involved in amateur dramatics all the way through high school and before. We used to do stuff called the pantomime in Ireland, which is a very popular Christmas show that they do in the UK and Ireland. It's a lot of like you know, fairy tales with a lot of songs and dance in it and lots of musicals and lots of cross-dressing. You know, there's always the dame who dresses up like a, as a guy who dresses up as usually the mother of the hero. And then the hero is usually usually a woman playing a boy very long tradition in the uk and that's we I, we started doing that in the west coast of ireland for an organization called the clara dramatic society that i would say was if anything that was maybe one of my larger influences started out in theater now everybody calls me a voice actor which i you know i i'm very proud to be a voice actor but the funny thing is is that red dead wasn't voice acting <laughs> Everybody says it's, you know, everybody calls performances in gaming voice acting 10, 15, 20 years ago. That was the case, but it's kind of not the case any longer, you know. Uh, performance capture is as much of a part of it now if not more so but when your work gets misrepresented though that can be problematic everybody thinks what i uh, if i was just in a sound booth for doing arthur for five years you know that can actually impede my my opportunities for on-camera stuff because they don't understand the similarities of the performance capture and film have with each other it's uh, it's, it's actually quite a bit in common much more so than voice acting in film and, you know one of the reasons red dead took so long to make is because we we were putting on those spandex suits with the shiny balls on and we were doing those scenes and we rehearsed them and we performed them until the director was happy so it was very very similar to film or tv in that you know your 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 colleagues are there and you're you're bouncing off of each other just like you would on stage or in front of the camera and you keep doing it until it's right that's why it took so long had we just been in a booth it would have done up been done a lot quicker but i think a lot of the little idiosyncratic details and and they would have been glossed over. You wouldn't necessarily have discovered as much stuff in a sound booth by yourself as when you're out, out there with your friends and colleagues working on, on the organicness of a scene, for lack of a better word. I know organicness is not a word. <laughs> Specifically with Red Dead, I was just telling Ben, you know, I think the reason that voice actor comes out of people's mouths initially is because that's the most common practice. You know, what Rockstar did and what you guys with Red Dead is not necessarily common. That's why and it's that's, so good. And it's still changing now. I mean, 
voice acting's not going away. And right. some of Red Dead was voice acting. I would say maybe about 10% of my work was in a booth, but that was a lot of in-game dialogue, like if, when you're traveling on horseback from one location to another, that would have been done in the booth. But more and more of it now is, is being done via performance capture. Myself and Ben, you know, we've tried to do what we could to help spread awareness about that. Because if you guys are kind enough to say, oh, I loved what you did, I really appreciated the work, you know, the least we could say is, well, here is a little bit more about what the work actually was. Because I love it. I love performance capture. I think it's such a fascinating medium. You know, it's in many ways, it's got more freedom than film and TV because the same location can be so many diverse, vastly diverse places. I mean, we would be, when we were doing Red Dead, we'd be in Coulter in the morning. And then that evening, we're, our afternoon, we're doing scenes in Saint Denis. And it's the same, it's the same stage. It's the same sets. We would, we would be pipes and scaffolding. You know, all the sets would be dimensionally accurate, but we wouldn't know what it actually looked like until the animators would show us on a computer screen. And then that was invaluable. That gave us reference. And then we were able to really, really create create the environment, create the atmosphere, you know? You wouldn't be swatting flies away from your face if you're up there in Coulter. Coulter's the place where you have to be wading through the snow and you have to walk accordingly, you know? So we found lots of little tricks to bring forth those details to make it more authentic and to make it more immersive for the player, I think. We appreciate it, for sure. Just to back up a little bit, Roger, you did mention that you studied stage in Wales. What was the catalyst that made you eventually come back to the States? Well, I had been working in the UK for about a decade. Most of it was theater with a lot of voiceover thrown in too, because I, you know, having lived in so many different places, I, I was able to do a few different accents. But the impetus to move back to New York, you know, I felt like I had kind of plateaued in London. I felt like, you know, I was booking Irish roles and I was booking American roles. I wanted to get my teeth sunk into Shakespeare and it was really hard to book those jobs because the English would, you know, they'd stick to their own really. and. They would, they'd, sometimes you, you try to be honest and you walk into the room and you're an actual accent and they would think, no, this guy, this guy obviously can't do it. But so I thought, you know what, I've still got this U.S. passport. I was still born there. Why not go back and have a little bit of a stab at it over there? And I, I never looked back because it, it opened up my pigeonhole quite a bit. Because then instead of just doing Irish and American roles, now I was getting the British roles too. And I was able to do Shakespeare and my opportunities expanded, not just because of, I think there was more work, but also because of the type of roles that I was being offered. So yeah, I started off off Broadway and we moved, I moved back to New York City in 08, started working off Broadway and off off Broadway pretty quickly, which was great. And then, you know, the, the voiceover never really went away. Those, those jobs always were coming and going and whatnot. And in 2013 is when I first started working for Rockstar Games. Is Broadway a goal of yours? Yeah, I'd love to do Broadway. I've done off-Broadway a few times now. Never quite. I've auditioned several times for Broadway. I'd love to do Broadway, yeah. As someone who worked in, in London a lot, is there a major difference working on stage in the U.S. as compared to the U.K.? All audiences are different culturally. We would tour Europe a lot, and I would always be fascinated to see which jokes the French would laugh at as opposed to the Germans, you know? And I think there's definitely a bit of that going on with the Brits and the Americans, too, you know? Broadway is a great place, and I think what London has in comparison would be probably be the West End, you know, mm. so it caters to tourists a lot. You know, you've got some really, really high-class productions in both places. You know, the American audiences are wonderful. 
But I found like, gosh, you know, I've been doing it now for over 20 years. And I have found with the advent of mobile phones and then getting more and more popular, it's funny, you'll see all the flashing screens or, or what, what's even worse is you'll see their, their faces lit up as they look at their phones. <laughs> oh, <you know>? no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember once I was doing a show in Florida and, you know, we all know Florida's pretty well known for its retirement community. This particular show, we would walk on in a blackout and the curtains were already drawn at this stage. And I would always see all the lights flashing from the oxygen tanks. <laughs> but they were great. They were great, you know, because these are all educated old folk, you know, and they probably lived in New York half of their lives. They're all half of them are snowbirds, you know. <laughs> Right. So they would actually be really great audiences. It was just that first moment with all these flashing oxygen tanks. I, I hate to say it, no, but the worst audiences are probably school kids. <laughs> they're, they're, mo the most, they're the most honest, too, though. <laughs> if you suck, they'll, they're the first ones to tell you. So in a way, they, they can be quite unruly when they want to be. Yeah. So what were some of your favorite roles to play personally on stage? Oh, well, I did Macduff for a very long time. I enjoyed that immensely. That's probably my favorite Shakespeare play. You know, I got to do have a big fight at the end of it with Claymore's Chop Off Macbeth's Head. I also did a stage adaptation of uh, Frankenstein when I played the monster. That was a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, because some of it was taken verbatim from Mary Shelley's book. And there's this great scene in it where the monster grabs Dr. Frankenstein and drags him up to this mountain up in the Alps. And he basically gives him the ultimatum. He says, create him. You made me. And then you just abandoned me, which really was a shitty move. And so he gives him the ultimatum. He says, create a mate for me. That's what you owe me. You just created me and abandoned me. And I'm so lonely now. If you don't create a girlfriend for me, I'm going to kill your family. And it's quite a crazy scene and it's brutal. And it's one of the most interesting things about this scene is that unlike the cinema versions of Frankenstein that we are so familiar with, is the monster is very articulate. And he, he, he's as intelligent as Frankenstein himself at this stage. And he has learned to become eloquent and his vocabulary is on the same level as, as Dr. Frankenstein. So it becomes quite a philosophical argument. That was one of my favorite bits. I like doing Biff Lohman from Death of a Salesman. That was mm. a lot of fun. And, you know, I've, there's been a lot of roles. Arthur really is. I mean, I think I'm always going to be known for that one. I'm very grateful for that. Unlike a lot of stage stuff, that one was, was made out of thin air between myself and the writers and, and the animators. That one was created out of thin air. Nobody had done Arthur before, so there was a lot more freedom involved in creation of it. Or at least you were starting from scratch anyways, which right. was an exciting thing. What were you into creatively when it comes to movies and stuff that you would consume growing up? Well, Abbott Costello was one, definitely. I loved movies. Me and my dad would watch movies all the time. He got me into westerns. He was a John Wayne guy. Ah, uh, yeah. And me being rebellious, obviously, I was a bit more into the spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood. But as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate John Wayne. And I think, actually, uh, there's more John Wayne in Arthur than there is Clint Eastwood. Because Clint Eastwood was kind of too stoic. He, he, he hardly said anything. Yeah. So I think John, but John Wayne had that kind of dry, sardonic wit that our, I think Arthur took a page or two from that. And John Wayne, you know, he, he just had a kind of drawl and just a, not, the way that he would speak and move. It was uh, There was a bit of a swagger, I think 
take that Arthur, Arthur took from that. But uh, another really big influence was uh, a lot of people don't, uh, Toshiro Mifune. I don't know if you heard of him, but he was in a lot of Kurosawa movies. He was in The Seven Samurai, mm, he was okay. in Jimbo Sanjuro. He was like Kurosawa's go-to leading man. And he played a lot of samurais. He was amazing because he could be terrifying one minute and then funny the next and you know the samurais and and outlaws had a lot in common especially yeah. the wandering ronin samurais the ones that were like clanless and leaderless and they were just walking from village to village there's a lot of similarities between that and the wild west and i think george lucas picked up on that and and the yojimbo sanjuro they eventually went on to become remakes and in the spaghetti western world they went on to become fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more so the the comparison between samurai feudal japan and, and the wild west in the u.s is, is definitely has been picked up by a few people another big influence too was rob weedoff who played john marston you know if for no other reason i knew i couldn't really do what he had done or at least try to recreate it word for word i thought i thought no nah, that, that's not gonna work because i was a huge fan of the first yeah, red dead uh, myself and great voice oh i loved it but mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong I, I mean jack marston's great too but i i sure didn't like playing as him mm. <laughs> he's no john no, I, I miss john <laughs> yeah. i miss john and it really changed my playing style too because like once john spoilers you know once john meets his end at the first Red Dead Redemption, I just became a total outlaw bastard as Jack. I was I was on the rampage, you know. I was an angry young kid, you know. My parents are dead. And I'm going to get these feds, you know, for what they did. So I was nasty. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I hope people don't feel the same way about Arthur. And then that second trailer came out and it introduced Arthur Morgan as the lead in Red Dead Redemption 2. I, you know, I, I did see a few comments and like, Arthur who? <laughs> we don't get to play as John, man. This sucks. And to be totally honest with you, I fully understood. Mm -hmm. I fully understood their feelings on that. Thankfully, they gave me, a lot of the fans seemed to have given me a chance. So, Roger, how did your first screen opportunity, professional screen opportunity, happen for you? Well, I trained in a, the, the capital of Wales, which is part of the UK, just west of England. And I went to drama school there in Cardiff. And I think my first foray into film was in Cardiff. Do it first like doing student films much as you do and then some some extra work for the local television there. There was a channel called S4C. They did a lot of stuff in Welsh, which is kind of a Celtic language. It's like uh, Irish Gaelic, only it's Welsh. But uh, I would be an extra in a lot of those. I wouldn't have a clue what anyone was saying. <laughs> I was just standing where they told me to stand. And then eventually I migrated to, to London, you know, because that's where more of the work was. I started working on some uh, British TV shows, you know, bits and bobs, really. Most of my experience has been theater and performance capture and voiceover. I would love to get into film more. And I am. I'm starting to produce some of my own stuff now. You know, it's a very different beast. The lens is like the tiny focal point where millions and millions of your audience is. Right. The audience on stage, the audience is there. Where on, on camera, the audience is right there. It's the tiny, tiny pinpoint. And you have to be conscious of that when your performance, where your audience is looking at you, you know? I've spoken with a lot of actors started in theater that initially struggled with that transition of toning themselves down because they don't have to reach the back row anymore. That's true. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you really do. It is. That's exactly everything. The camera picks up everything. 
Sometimes you just have to think it, and then the eyes will show it. Well, on camera, less is definitely more. It does take some work. But I still think that theater is the best place to start off. Because you learn in real time what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. You learn, and the timing is still similar. You know, if you're doing comedy or whatnot, the timing is still similar. It's just the grandioseness of your performance, like as you say, to make sure that guy in the back row can hear you. Any, any aspiring actor should, should start off on, on, on stage. There's no filters between you and your audience. They see exactly what you're doing. And you can learn. If you, if you learn to listen to them as much as they're listening to you, you can't help but get better because of that. I'm looking at your uh, credit list, uh, Roger, and something that a uh, show that I haven't thought about in a long time. I shouldn't be alive. I think that used to come on Discovery Channel. Am I right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. were you in one of those dramatizations where, you know, you got eaten by a shark yeah. or a lion or something? Mine, what, my one was sharks, yeah. <laughs> a long time ago now we filmed that in the canary islands and in malta it was nice locations but yeah that was a while back now that was done in, when i was in the uk it came out on the discovery in you in the u.s i believe that was when i was in the uk so let's talk red dead a little bit was that your typical audition or was it a right place right time situation for you my agent knew that i liked performance capture for gaming because i had done it before so when she saw the breakdown she she said are you up for this i think you are and i said yeah I didn't know what it was. They're all the same title when you're auditioning. They're all called Untitled Video Game Project. And sometimes even they don't even tell you the studio. And in the, for this particular case, I knew it was Take Two, but I didn't know it was Rockstar Games. I was a little bit suspicious when they said to come in wearing cowboy boots and to have kind of a West Texan draw. Because I, it's just by pure serendipity, I had just finished the first Red Dead Redemption about a month before this happened. So I was like, huh, that's funny. I wonder if it's Red Dead. But I didn't get an answer to that question until maybe the second or third audition. By that point, I knew it was Rockstar Games. You know, it was it's very similar to a lot of other auditions. Except one of the few differences was usually you get the sides or the lines in mm -hmm. advance. But with this one, no. You had to, uh, you showed up and then they gave you the page once you signed in, which has its advantages and disadvantages, you know? And I think from their perspective, they want to see how quickly you can learn copy because a lot of the times you get in last minute rewrites, you know, mm. that happened a lot. So I think they wanted to see how quickly you could learn something. And also, of course, you know, confidentiality is so important in the gaming industry. They don't want, especially if it's for an existing franchise, you know, they don't want anything spoiled for the fans. They want the fans to enjoy it as much as they possibly can when it first comes out, you know? So that was one of the differences from a typical audition. And then we were working on it a while before I even got offered a contract, you know? Because, you know, performance capture in a video game, as much as it is similar to film and TV, there, there are a lot of differences too. And one of the differences is, is that as an actor, your contribution to a video game takes up a smaller piece of the whole pie than it does on film or TV. You know, what the animators do and what the designers do and what the engineers do and what even down to the QA guys, the guys who are looking for bugs day in and day out. All of that stuff is is vital for the development of a game. And you need a bigger, a much, much bigger team than uh, on a film most films 
So that's another big difference. But I, I just, I, I'm so passionate about performance capture because I love the freedom. And I've seen the technology get better and better over the years too. And as the technology gets better, more freedoms are given to the actor and you can do more. And as long as you, you, you learn to appreciate your animators, because they're the animators on Red Dead 2 were just as valuable to me as the directors were, because they were able to answer all the questions that I had. Like, what time of day is this? Where and what's what's the geography? What's the weather like? So often the animators were answering those questions instead of the directors. So, you know, I just love the whole premise of, of working on a game. It's different from film, you know? In film, you're, the audience is a spectator, but on, in gaming, the audience is a participant, you know? It's uh, it's more immersive, in my opinion. Uh, you know? I'll agree I don't with think you. many people would argue with that. No. I mean, you don't get to control the guy in the movie. You don't get no. to decide if he shoots the guy in the head. Exactly. So were you given much direction for the voice of Arthur? Were you, did they kind of guide you, or did you nail it? I was doing theater at the time during the whole audition process, and one of the, my, my dresser, one of my fellows who helped me out with costume, he was from Flagstaff, Arizona. So he helped me a little bit, and the only thing I heard from them was kind of like a West Texan. And I think some West Texan did end up with Arthur, but there's some Southern in there too, like Louisiana, Arkansas. And I figured that was okay to have a bit of both, you know, because he had traveled a lot from a young age. And considering that the Red Dead world is kind of like our world, but not geographically the same. I mean, it's funny, you know, there's references to New York and Tahiti and whatnot. But when you look at the map, it's totally fictional. So I figured that consistency was more important than any geographical accuracy to our country, to the real United States. Exactly. You know, you know he's got the soft R's sometimes. You'll say, sure. You know, but then other times he's quiet text and he's kind of hard on the, you know, and that's, I was going for Lubbock because I'd been, I'd worked in Lubbock for a while. And, and this feller from, from Flagstaff, Arizona helped me out a lot too. When you're doing it for five years, I would often get a little paranoid. I'd be like, oh God, am I, do I sound the same as I did three years ago? <laughs> and they'd be like, well, let's see. And then we would play something from three years ago. And I'd be like, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. That was <laughs> That was valuable, valuable asset, yeah. But then you got people like Rob Weedoff, who just talks in his normal voice, like he's from Indiana. I mean, he is John Marston. He opens his mouth, that's John. <laughs> so yeah, he didn't have that problem, you know? Right, and you hear Ben Davis talk, and he sounds it's, almost it's, exactly it's, like Dutch. It is, there, there are similarities, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, there are, definitely. You guys did uh, five years of motion capture, that's what you said? For the Red Dead 2, yeah. And for the original cast, even longer, yeah. But for me, five years. Five years, were you ever a bit worried or nervous when the game comes out? Were you like, man, I hope this is good. Like, just playing the game. Yeah, I was terrified. Because we had no idea. We were working in complete secrecy. Yeah. Our NDAs were so strict. And, you know, and, I, and that was a double-edged sword. Because the advantages of that were we were able to work completely unhindered. We were able to focus and concentrate just on the work. And there wasn't really any distraction. Like, people weren't calling me up because they didn't know who, the, who I was. <laughs> So I was able to focus on it. But then the con part of that is, you know, what we did, the amount of footage we put down, I think cutscenes alone, or, you know, or all the footage that we got, it's close to nine or 10 hours. They about five, maybe five seasons of a TV show, but we had no idea how it was going to be received. There was no audience input. It was just all dumped on October 26th, 
2018 for the world to enjoy or not. So we had to trust each other a lot. I had to trust the Rockstar team who had been through all that before with GTA and the first Red Dead and what and all their other amazing titles. So I had to trust them. But yeah, we, I, we had no idea. I mean, I, I remember thinking at the time, as long as it's regarded as a worthy successor to the first one, I'll be happy. You know, as long as it sold like as many or close to as many copies as the first one, I'll be happy. And we far exceeded that. So. Oh, yes. So when you first start playing, when does it finally come over you that when you start to realize, oh, man, this is really, really good? I don't know. I don't want to admit to myself that it was good. I, I, I enjoy it immensely. Well, there, there was a lot of hype building up to it. And I remember all those billboards popping up all over the world. And people started for, for years, you know, because of my NDA, I wasn't able to tell anyone what I was working on. I would just say, you know, it's a video game. And after a couple of years, people started to think I was just talking out of my ass, you know? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, you're still working on that video game, Raj? Yeah. How long has it been now? Three years? Four years? One video game? Okay. Yeah. You know, Raj, if you're not working... You know, we still love you, pal. We think you're awesome. You know, you don't have to create and make up jobs just to impress us. <laughs> I, that conversation happened a few times. And then the trailer came out and the billboards came out and people were like, it's not that one, is it? I'm like, I still couldn't say it. <laughs> Once it got released. A few days after release, and once the reviews started coming in, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I guess people like it. I mean, obviously you enjoyed the first Red Dead, and you enjoyed playing the game oh, yourself. Yeah. When did you when did you realize that for uh, for yourself when you're sitting there playing the game that, um, you, as a fan, that you enjoyed it? Oh, I, I, I guess I knew I was going to enjoy it, because I'm a huge Rockstar Games fan. I remember I was been a fan of theirs since the first GTA. Like when you were looking down from the bird's eye view. I remember that, playing that in college. I knew I was going to like it, even if it was, you know, look at the work uh, and not just our work, but to look at all the other departments. Like I mentioned before, all the stuff that they had been doing in tandem with us, but, un, you know, unknown to us. So I was really excited to see how all of those departments work, synergized with each other. But I guess once the reviews started coming in, I was like, holy cow, okay. I guess people are enjoying this. For an artist, you can't ask for anything more than that. To have your work enjoyed on a scale like that is really a dream come true, to have a, a, an audience that large enjoy your work. It really is amazing. I mean, you did a great job, man, and you deserve all the accolades you've gotten in regards to Arthur. I played the shit out of that game, and I love the shit out of that game, and you did a great job. Thank you, man. Cheers. Probably, I'll be, you know, it's probably going to be on my gravestone, and I'm totally happy with that. So what was the most difficult part for you about becoming Arthur? I mean, aside from the five-year NDA. Honestly, crouch running. Because, you know, no two studios do it the same way. But I did. Sometimes you'll have multiple performers doing the performance capture. You'll have one guy doing the in-game animations, and then you'll have the actor doing the cutscenes. That happens a lot. But I did everything, apart from major stunts. So I all the in-game animations is me. And crouch running was a bitch. <laughs> that was hard. It was like a couple of days of it. Because you, first your crouch, your stealth crouch walking, then your crouch walking, then your crouch running. Then you got to do all those with one pistol. Then you got to do them with two pistols. Then you do it with a shotgun. Then you do it with a rifle. Then you do it with a knife. Then you do it holding a stick of dynamite. My, my thighs were killing me, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> rough on the knees. Oh, it was a good workout. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely the hardest part. Another hard part too is was just trying to wrap my head around. I had worked in gaming before, you know, so I was familiar with the medium, but nothing at the same at this level. So I was trying to wrap my head around the differences between playing the lead in a game and on a film or TV show. Because I knew that the player was going to be responsible for my behavior in a lot of situations. And I knew that there was going to be a good Arthur and a bad Arthur, depending on, on how they played. And that was mostly binary, but it was kind of a spectrum, too. And we did different scenes if... You know, if, if the player had low honor, we would do different scenes. And if they had high honor, it would be another different scene. But sometimes they were the same scene. And that was a challenge because then I knew I had to come up with a performance that was ambiguous enough so that it would make sense either way, but yet still be truthful to Arthur. So that was a bit of a juggling slash balancing act that was kind of trick. But hopefully I, I think yeah, that was, but it was an, a great challenge, too. It was an interesting challenge. Does Roger Clark's uh, Arthur Morgan lean more towards high or low honor? It's called redemption, right? <laughs> I think the story's more rewarding if it's high honor. Plus, you don't have all the bounty hunters chasing after you all the time. That is a problem. And things cost less in stores. If you have high honor, you don't pay as much for stuff. I think, you know, the beauty of it is, is Rockstar gives you the freedom to do it whatever way you want. But I think a high honor playthrough is encouraged. And it should be, too. I think I think it's more rewarding. Right. It's, the, the, it's the hints in the title of the game, you know? And if things do get hairy, you can't always resort to what you have to do, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, like, if you, you know, and sometimes it's fun to shoot up Valentine and just leave no survivors. <laughs> But if you do that, just go to San Denis and say hello to everyone for 20 minutes. You'll be fine. <laughs> throw, throw a few fish back, pet a dog. No problem. You just mentioned, you know, you've worked with other video game studios before. So you can compare and contrast a little bit for us. You don't have to name a specific studio. But what is the level jump from video game studio A to Rockstar? Rockstar was uh, is definitely top shelf. I was blown away by their level of technology compared to other studios that I had worked with. Of course, time had a factor of that too. It had been like a couple of years and it, the technology was advancing very fast. But the team, all the team behind Rockstar, all the creatives and all of the tech guys and women were so talented and so intelligent. And they, we were all there and we all had a common goal and that was to create the best video game that we could. So that was awesome. Of course, you know, it's a very large organization, too. You know, sometimes it would take a while to get a clear answer from someone. You know, sometimes they had to go through the, the levels uh, to, to get an answer for some stuff. You know, in other studios, you, don't, you, you can get a bit of a quicker response. But for the most part, I was just blown away by, by everyone's talent and commitment. So five years as Arthur, can you take us through when you guys were recording those final moments? Because I believe Ben said before, as he's walking away as Dutch, he's actually crying. What was that moment like for you? We did the, there's four endings for Arthur, as you know. I, we did them in the fourth year, I believe. And I had known it was coming for four years because pretty early on, we did the Thomas Downs mission, the debt collecting mission with for Downs when he coughs in Arthur's face. And that was a very specific stage direction. So I was like, hang on a minute. Then I'm Googling when the cure for TB was found. And 
<laughs> well, I put two and two together, and they they confirmed. So for four years, I knew I knew what was going to happen to Arthur, but I didn't know specifically how. We would get our sides usually a week or two in advance. Usually like a week in advance, we would get our sides. So I got them after four years of waiting to see how it would happen. And I was very nervous because I wanted to give the this character's goodbye justice. You know, I'd been working on him for four years at this point. I was attached. The first ending we did was the one where Ben was bawling his eyes out. He says he was. I didn't see it. <laughs> I was too busy dying. <laughs> um, that one was that one was pretty nerve wracking. I was very very nervous because I wanted to do it justice. It was the one with high honor helping John up on the mountain, and then shortly after we did. The low honor version of that, where Micah gets you in the face, and then we did the two alternative endings for when Arthur goes back to get the money, and all that was done in about a week. And we might have returned back to do a one or two tiny little bits a few months afterwards. But the first one, the high honor helping John, that was really hard. But then once I did that, the other three were easier. Have you seen an uh, influx in your audio book opportunities since the release of Red Dead? You know, it's funny. Yeah, a lot of op- I'm, just, I'm very. I love to work, and I am hugely grateful for any and all opportunities that come my way. The opportunities that have come my way post Red Dead are not the ones that I was expecting, but at the same time, I'm very grateful for them. You know, if it wasn't for audiobooks, I don't know what I would have been doing during COVID because there was nothing else going on. So I was very grateful for that and that I was able to work from home and be with my kids. Do all those Zoom school classes because they were so much fun. Right, Colin? Oh, yeah. My wife is a teacher. We know all about those. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Let me say to your wife, I, after after kind of helping her do her job for two years, my hat, my hat, I take my hat off to her. <laughs> I will let her know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and, and a lot of a lot more gaming opportunities has come, which I love, and I love working on. I love performance capture so much. So I'm I'm working on a game now with Troy Baker, as a matter of fact. And wow. oddly enough, I mean, there's some stuff I can't discuss, but this one was funny because the NDA wasn't as strict. It's a sci-fi thriller set on Mars. It's called Fort. Solace, and you can catch a trailer for it right now on YouTube. Solace is spelled S-O-L-I-S, just so you know. That was a lot of fun working with Troy. We're still working on it. I don't know when it's going to be out yet. Let's talk of next year, but you know, nothing official has been sent out yet, but it was a real joy working with Troy, and I think uh, hopefully we're going to knock your socks off when it comes out. But I just love working for all of those opportunities that have come my way. I, I miss being in front of the camera, though. You know, I, yeah. it's funny. I, I had more auditions on camera before Red Dead came out, back when nobody knew who I was. The funny thing is, is that, again, I think a lot of people just still think it's it's all done in a booth, you know? Yeah, but, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we've been trying to raise awareness about it, because it, it's what Andy Serkis did on Lord of the Rings and Planet of the Apes. It's the exact same thing. We're raising motion capture awareness here. That's what we're doing. The funny thing is, like, some you know, some people get angry when I, when I tell them, though. That's the weird thing. It's like, thank you so much, you know? Would you believe it? You know, most of it actually wasn't voice acting. They're like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? You're the voice, ain't you? get angry. They get angry at me then. And then they, you know, they tell me what my job was because they've been like, you know, some people, you know, people, we still say voice acting. It's like, I still call Pepsi Coke sometimes. Yeah, so. it's just a traditional term. You know, people think cartoons, guy standing in a booth doing voices. It's, it's just yeah. that kind of thing, you know. And there is nothing wrong with that either. And I do that a lot and I love it, you know, but it's just a totally different <laughs> beast. It's a totally different beast. 
Right. Uh, motion capture sounds closer to theater than voice work. Yeah, I would say so. The challenging thing about voice acting is it's it's usually just you, especially since COVID. Mm -hmm. It's just you and your life experiences, and you've only got one tool to come up with a character, and that is your voice. So in, in many ways, I find PCAP easier, but I love the challenge of voice acting, too. I really enjoy that as well. So, Roger, what's the best acting advice that someone has given you throughout your career? Oh, man, I've heard so much. You know, you, you got you to gotta learn how to deal with rejection. Every no brings you closer to your next yes. And you book 100% of the roles that you were meant to book, you know. It's hard, you know, you can't take it personally, even though it is, it kind of is personal. <laughs> you have to figure out a way not to take it personally. And, you know, it's a fickle industry. Talent is no guarantee. Hard work is no guarantee. It's mostly luck. And you still, you know, even luck is no guarantee. Sometimes you need a certain combination of all three. You know, the best advice that I had ever been given, just work begets work. That's what I've always stuck to. Work begets work. Because if you throw enough shit at the wall, something will stick. Eventually. Well said. <laughs> Have you seen any movies recently that have moved you? Oh, I like the Batman. That was great. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Heard good things. The Batmobile. I watched it in IMAX. And when that Batmobile starts up, man, my seat was vibrating. It was <laughs> what else did I see? I saw Elvis. It was okay. Elvis was okay. The music is great. But something that really blew me away, you know what I really enjoyed recently was Severance. Uh, I have not even. Nominated. It's on Apple Plus, Apple TV. Oh, it's a great show. That's awesome. Uh, ben Stiller's directed the whole thing. I really enjoyed that. It's a TV series. It's his first season. It's got nominated for loads of Emmys. Severance was awesome. I and my wife, I was like, how many things we got subscribed to now? <laughs> oh, well, okay. I might check that out. Yeah, we just had to get Hulu to watch Prey. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's really good. Prey? Mm-hmm. It's a new Predator movie. Oh, yes! Very yes, good. I, and it's set in the past, right? Mm-hmm. 1700s. Wow. Very red, Daddy. You probably like it yourself. <laughs> right, I'm going to check that out. You know, I really liked, I love all of those ones, but the one that I enjoyed the most and didn't expect to was the one with Adrian Brody. I think it's called Predators. Yeah, it's the most recent one before this one, I believe. That one was, that one was a lot of fun. We got to do Predator v. Aliens next. <laughs> I know there's been quite a few comic, graphic novels of that, and I've enjoyed all of them. I think it's only a matter of time we should get that on film now. I think there was a Predator vs. Alien movie that had Lance Hendrickson in the early 2000s. You're right. There was. Mm -hmm. There was. Another one. Why not another yeah. one? <laughs> and only one Predator survived, as yeah. I recall. Yeah, yeah. One giant. Predator and then the woman, right? Yeah, the, the giant alien brood mother at the end, and they were running from it. I think that's how that ended. The, 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 the jet just burned her. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it now, yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, those aliens are nasty, man. <laughs> So, uh, Roger, is there anything on the horizon that you can tell us about without getting in trouble? Fort Solace. Uh, there's a couple of other games, too, uh, that I can't talk about, but watch this space. If you want to watch, uh, keep an eye on my socials. I am at rclark98 on Twitter and Rolling Raj on Instagram. And I just started TikTok because, gosh, you know, life isn't interesting enough without any <laughs> social media. And I'm Roger Clark Actor on that. And I, I make a lot of all the announcements of my upcoming stuff on there. I've started producing some short films and we're doing the rounds with festivals with that right now. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff coming up and I'm excited for you all to see. That's good news. 
Well, Roger, it's been great talking to you. I'm going to let you go get back to your family and go eat dinner and all that good stuff. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for asking, Justin. All right. You have a great evening. Take care. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.